I'm proud to announce that this episode is sponsored by Joanna Benefield of Keller Williams of Southeast Alabama of Dothan, Alabama, 334-796-7085. Hey, Dawn, how are you doing? Doing good, Sherry. I'm excited. <laughs> yes, yes. So this is going to be one of those cases that... I'm going to agree with you. <laughs> the husband did it. Yes. Yes. I'm going to agree with you. And there's just really, uh, there's been documentaries, books and everything trying to persuade people that he was innocent. He was set up. The evidence wasn't there, but you know, he's a narcissist dog and he did it. So um, this is a case that, was like near and dear to my heart. It was the very first like family annihilator case that I studied. My mom had the book Fatal Vision when I was a kid and she told me I was too young to read it. So it was the summer when she was at work and I was sneaking her bedroom and get it and read it. <laughs> That's usually how it works. So I read it and then I remember hearing about it on the news and all of that. Um, I was born in 73. This took place in 1970. My dad was in the National Guard. Um, this took place at Fort Bragg. Um, my dad was in Fort Benning. And I mean, uh, it seemed like I remember him talking about somebody that he met was actually stationed there with Jeff McDonald. So I remember this being a big topic when all of this trial and stuff was taking place. Uh, you know, we talked about it. And so this was the first case, the big case that I can remember. And so I've always been intrigued by it. How, so. how big would you compare the case to a case that people might know nowadays? Like, would it be like the O.J. Simpson case or would it be... Scott Peterson, like how big of a case was it in comparison? I would say the, I would say it would be along, it would parallel with like, he was not famous like OJ, but I would say the following, the the media mm -hmm. um, would be about like the OJ Simpson because he took it and after he was, first found um, not guilty or it was dismissed, he went on talk shows. Oh. So he tried to use it to, you become know, become, famous. Yeah, become famous. And um, he actually had an author come and live with him who wrote the book Fatal Vision. He lived with him and stayed with him and they become like best buds for three years and then jeff mcdonald was floored when the book didn't favor him he actually said no he's a narcissist and he killed his family well he sounds he has, like a narcissist he is he's totally scum so are you ready to dive in and hear all the juicy yes pictures? yes i can't wait all right, so this is the story of Jeffrey McDonald, Fatal Vision or Fatal Errors. Hmm. Hey there, listeners. Thanks for joining us on Crime Explorer Shack. I'm your host, Sherry Carroll, joined by my co-host, Dawn. 
I want to remind you that Crime Explorers is created for mature audiences only. Most of our shows include details of true crime cases that some may find a bit disturbing and or offensive as an extra heads up. Most episodes include discussion of depression, psychosis, suicidal thoughts, rape, and or murders, sometimes even of children. We do our best to hold these topics with intention and sincerity and try to deliver the facts of the cases to bring awareness to our listeners. And as always, the accused are innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. So I feel obligated to put this trigger warning out before we even get started. We hope that you will join us whenever you feel ready and able. So let's get started to go to the Crime Explorer Shack. Okay, so I'm on, this is such a long in-depth thing. I was going to do two parts but I am not going to make it two parts. If it gets too long, people know how to hit pause and come back to it. So this is going to just, we're going forward, head first. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, for those who do, do not know, you can find out all kinds of information. There is the book, Fatal Vision. There is the mini series that was put out, I believe it was in 1980. Fatal Vision based on the book. And also last year there was a opposite viewpoint called Wilderness of Error by Errol Morris, who believes that there was a conspiracy against Jeffrey McDonald. So mm. it gave a, a, an opposing viewpoint. So there's all kind of stuff you can find on the internet about him. But Jeffrey Robert McDonald was born October 12, 1943 in Jamaica, Queens, New York, to Robert and Dorothy Perry McDonald. Jeff's father, Robert, was a very strict disciplinarian. He had high standards. And although he was never violent to the children, he demanded obedience and high achievements from all of the family. Jeff was raised in a very poor household on Long Island, but despite their financial means, he was actually voted most popular and most likely to succeed by his peers at um, Patrigo Medford High School. And he was also the president of their student council and their king of senior prom. Jeffrey met Colette Catherine Stevenson towards the end of his eighth grade year. And Colette was born May 10th, 1944. Jeff later recollected in the book, Fatal Vision, and he talked about it in court, that when he saw Colette walking down the hall with her best friend, he found both girls attractive, but he was actually more attracted to Colette. And within two weeks, he and Colette had formed a friendship and he asked her to the movies. They actually formed a romantic relationship in the ninth grade, and Jeff recalled that they fell in love while holding hands on a balcony watching the movie called A Summer Place. The following summer, while visiting a friend on Fire Island, Colette announced to Jeff that she no longer wanted a relationship with him, and it was over. So McDonald moved on and formed a relationship with another girl named Penny Wells. Time goes on. 
His academic achievements earned him a three-year scholarship to Princeton University, and he enrolled as a pre-med student in 1962. During his second year at Princeton, he and Penny Wells broke up, so he resumed his romantic relationship with Colette, who was at that time a freshman at Skidmore College in Saratoga Springs. He goes on to tell some of the press and some of the interviews and at court that Colette had grown into a very shy young woman with, quote, a slight fear of the world in general. And she would often rely on his self-confidence. And he seemed to enjoy being her protector. And he was often fond of her timid nature. Especially and they, the narcissist. Exactly. That, that was a very, you know, narcissist, uh, boasting mood for him. Um, he said that they maintained frequent contact with each other through letters and phone calls, and he would frequently hitchhike to Skidmore College to be her companion on the weekends. And this was this late 60s and early 70s, you know, well, the mid 60s. Okay. Mm -hmm. So hitchhiking was very common. Um, Cause I know some of these teens are going to be like hitchhiking. Oh my God. So, <laughs> <was a> <laughs> although he was still dating around with other women at the time, he resolved to marry Colette when he learned that she was carrying his child in August of 63. So she quit college to raise their child and Colette's family gave their blessing and they were married on September the 14th, 1963 in New York City. 100 people attended the service and the reception was held at the Fifth Avenue Hotel. And they spent a few days at Cape Cod for their honeymoon. And April the 18th, 1964, their first daughter, Kimberly Catherine McDonald was born. Jeff completed his undergrad degree at Princeton and he worked briefly as a construction supervisor before he moved on with his wife, Colette, and daughter, uh, Kimberly, to Chicago the summer of 65. Well, this was because he had been accepted into the Northwestern University Medical School. They moved to a very small one-bedroom apartment. Jeff focused on school and working odd and in part-time jobs to take care of the finances while Colette committed to running the household and raising their daughter. The next year, they were able to move into a middle-class neighborhood and their second daughter, Kristen Jean, was born on May the 8th, 1967. Jeffrey graduated from medical school in 1968. After graduating, he and the family moved to Bergenfield, New Jersey, so he could complete his one-year internship at the Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center in New York, and he specialized in thoracic surgery. He later described this time of his internship as a, quote, horrendous year, end quote, for both him and Colette. He said that he frequently had to work 36 hours straight with only 12 hours at home. He was exhausted all the time. When he was able to be at home, he was just, he had very limited interactions with Colette and the girls. 
Um, Colette was complaining that he didn't have time to help her around the house. But upon completing his internship, Jeff and Colette took a vacation to Aruba before McDonald joined the Army. So he enlisted in the U.S. Army on June the 28th, 1969, and he was sent to Fort Sam Houston to undergo a six weeks basic training course. And while he was there at Fort Sam Houston, he volunteered to be assigned to the Army Special Forces, which is also known as the Green Berets. He wanted to be the Special Forces physician. At that point in time, he was assigned to Fort Benning, Georgia, where he completed their paratrooper training. And while most who joined the Army at that time knew that they would probably get deployed to serve in Vietnam, he learned that as a Green Beret doctor, that he would more than likely never serve overseas. Late August 69, McDonald was assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina, and he served as a third Special Forces Group Surgeon. He, Colette, and the two daughters resided at 544 Castle Drive. And this was on base in a section that is reserved strictly for married officers, and it's afforded security by the military police. They were welcomed into the neighborhood and quickly become popular amongst their neighbors, although Jeff and Colette were known to have argued occasionally. So by the time they got settled into their apartment at Fort Bragg, Colette was beginning to once again dream of fulfilling her aspirations of obtaining her bachelor's degree in English literature and teaching. Kimberly, the oldest, was shy and intelligent and the little girly girl, while Kristen, the youngest one, was more of a boisterous tomboy type who would run over and just crack someone. They bullied her big sister. So they were definitely two different types of personalities. So um, but they were beautiful little blonde head girls. On December the 10th, 1969, the third Special Forces Group was deactivated and McDonald was transferred on the base to headquarters and headquarters company, 6th Special Forces Group, Airborne, 1st Special Service Forces, and he served as a preventative medical officer. Just before Christmas on 1969, Colette was three months pregnant with her first son. Jeff went and bought the girls a Shetland pony in anticipation the family would be relocating to a farm in Connecticut. He didn't let Colette or the girls know of this purchase, but he and Colette's stepfather drove them to the stable as a surprise on Christmas Day. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Kimberly and Kristen named the pony Trooper, and it's said by some friends and acquaintances that Colette wrote letters during this time period that she and Jeff were content, and she described her life as being so normal and happy, and adding that their baby son that was due to be born in July would complete their family unit. In 1970, Jeffrey McDonald earned the rank of captain, and he was planning to study advanced medical training at Yale. On the afternoon of February 16, 1970, Jeffrey took the daughters to feed and ride the pony that he had bought them for Christmas. The trio then returned home about 5.45, 
McDonald showered and changed into an old pair of blue pajamas. And after the family ate supper, Colette left the house to attend an evening teaching class at the Fort Bragg's North Carolina University Extension. According to Jeffrey McDonald, he then played horsey, which was allowing his daughters to ride on his back around the house as he was their Shetland pony for a little while before he had to put Kristen to bed. Um, and he put Kristen to bed at 7 p.m. How then, old are the girls at this time? Uh, I believe they're five and seven. It goes on to tell me oh, a little okay. bit later. Go ahead. I mean, uh, Five and, five and two. Five and two, I believe. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, he put Kristen to bed at seven. And then Kimberly played a game on the coffee table. He then slept for an hour before watching Kimberly's favorite television show, Laugh-In, with her before his older daughter went to bed. Kimberly went to bed. So, Colette returned home at 940. And he and Colette sat on the couch watching television together before Colette decided she would go to bed midway through the Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Jeff had himself fallen asleep in the living room into the early hours of the following day. Around 3.42 a.m. on February 17, 1970, dispatchers at Fort Bragg received an emergency phone call from McDonald, who faintly spoke into the receiver saying, quote, help, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, 544 Castle Drive, stabbing, hurry. The operator then heard the sound of a receiver clatter against the wall or the floor, like it was swinging up against the wall. Within 10 minutes, responding military police had arrived at the address, initially believing that they were responding to a domestic disturbance. They found the front door was closed and locked. The house was dark inside, and when no one answered the door, they went to the back of the house, and the police sergeant discovered that the back screen door was closed, but it was unlocked, and that the back door was wide open. The screen was closed, but the door to the house was mm -hmm. open. So they entered in, and the sergeant walked into the master bedroom before he ran to the front of the house sh shouting, quote, tell them to get Womack ASAP end quote. So mm -hmm. Colette McDonald was discovered sprawled on the floor of the master bedroom. She laid on her back with one eye open and one breast exposed. She had been repeatedly clubbed about her body. Both of her forearms were later found to be broken. Oh, geez. The pathologist noted that these wounds had likely been inflicted as Colette had raised her arms to protect her face. Wow. In addition, she had been stabbed 21 times in the chest with an ice pick. Oh! And 16 times about the neck and the chest with a knife. And her trachea was severed in two places. Wow. A bloodied and torn pajama top was draped upon her chest and a paring knife laid beside her body. Beside her, Jeffrey McDonald was found laying face down, alive but wounded, with his head on Colette's chest 
and one armed around her neck. And as military personnel approached him, he whispered, check on my kids. I heard my kids crying. Oh, my God. Okay. Now I got to get through this without crying. Five-year-old Kimberly was found in her bed, having been repeatedly bludgeoned about her head and body and stabbed in the neck with a knife between eight and ten times. Jeez. She laid on her left side. Her skull had been fractured from at least two blows to the right side of her head. And one wound to her face had caused her cheekbone to protrude through the skin. Oh, my. The wounds to Kimberly's head were so severe in nature to have caused bruising to her brain, coma, and death soon after infliction. Wow. Across the hallway, two-year-old Kristen was found in her own bed, also lying on her left side with her baby bottle close to her mouth. She had, she had been stabbed 33 times across the chest, neck, hands, and back with a knife and 15 times with an ice pick. Oh, my God. This is so aggressive. It is. Oh, they were sleeping. The girls were sleeping. Yes. Oh. Two, two knife wounds had penetrated her heart, and the ice pick wounds were noted to be shallow. The injuries to her hands were likely defense wounds. And on the headboard of the McDonald's marital bed, the word pig was written in eight inch capital letters. The blood used to write this word was later determined to belong to Colette. Having received impromptu resuscitation, McDonald sat upright and he exclaimed, Jesus Christ, look at my wife. I'm going to kill those goddamn acid heads. He was immediately taken to nearby Womack Hospital shouting, let me see my kids, as he was carried out of his home on a stretcher. Taken to the Womack Army Medical Center, medical staff discovered the wounds McDonald had suffered were much less numerous and severe than those afflicted upon his wife and children. He suffered cuts, bruises, fingernail scratches to his face and chest. And although none of these wounds were life-threatening or required stitches, McDonald was found to have a mild concussion. He had also received a single stab wound between two ribs on his right torso. This wound was described by the staff surgeon as a, quote, clean, small, sharp, end quote, incision measuring five-eighths of an inch in depth and had caused his lung to partially collapse. McDonald was released from the hospital after nine days. Hmm. So, and my whole thought whenever I, I mean, even as a preteen teenager, when I read this, I was thinking, okay, if I'm going to go in and hurt somebody, I'm going to catch the one who's the biggest threat to me. Right. Right. I'm not going to go after the kids. I'm not going to go after the woman. He's the biggest threat to me. You know, where so, is he saying he was when all this was going on? 
The living room. Oh, sleeping? Sleeping on the couch. Oh, my gosh. And he hears Colette. He hears the girls saying, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. And he hears Colette saying, Jeff, help. Why are they doing this? Mm. So, so, like I said, he was released from the hospital after nine days. Questioned by the Criminal Investigation Division, CID, McDonald claimed that at about 2 a.m. on the 17th, he had washed the evening dinner dishes. Now, what man's going to get up at 2 a.m. and wash dishes, but okay. <laughs> or at all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so he got up and washed the evening dinner dishes before he decided to go to bed. Although, because his younger daughter, Christian, uh, Kristen had wet his side of the bed. He had taken her to her own bed, not wishing to wake his wife and change the sheets. He had then taken a blanket from Kristen's room and fallen asleep on the living room couch. According to McDonald, he was later awakened by Colette and Kimberly's screams and Colette shouting, Jeff, Jeff, help. Why are they doing this to me? As he rose from the couch to go to their aid, he was attacked by three male intruders, one black and two white. The shorter of the two white men had worn a worn lightweight possible surgical gloves. The fourth intruder he described as a white female with long blonde hair, which was possibly a wig, and wearing high-heeled knee-high boots and a white floppy hat partially covering her face. And this individual stood nearby holding a lit candle chanting, acid is groovy, kill the pigs. Oh, my gosh. Does any of that kind of sound familiar? <laughs> like uh, the Manson Sharon. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. So McDonald claimed that the three males then attacked him with a club and an ice pick. And the female intruder was shouting, hit him again. And during the struggle, he says that his pajama top was pulled over his head and was uh, bound around his wrist. Uh, he used it to ward off thrust from the ice pick. Eventually, he was overcome by his assailants and knocked unconscious in the living room. Uh, the living room end of the hallway that led towards the bedrooms. And I'll post a picture of the floor plan there is a really good picture that that i guess the fbi drew of the floor plans and it showed where the kids rooms were where the uh, assailants were supposedly supposed to have come in and it's a really good description so you can get a good visualization of this when he regained consciousness the intruders had disappeared from the house so he claims he stumbled from room to room, attempting mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation upon each of his daughters to no avail. And then he discovered Colette. And he had pulled a small paring knife from Colette's chest, which he then tossed onto the floor and attempted in vain to find her pulse. He then draped his, his pajama top over her body and he phoned for help. Now, he's a doctor. Mm-hmm. And most, I'm going to venture to say, most lay people know that if you are stabbed with something, you don't pull it out. Right. He's a he's a doctor. You pull that out, it's not going to be sealed. So 
that that just made no sense to me whatsoever. And isn't it pretty common so, too for if it's something where it's a family member that does it or somebody that knows the victim is actually the murderer that they cover the person with a comforter or a blanket yes. or something. It's like shame or something. Shame. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes. So he put his top over her, but that's a whole questionable thing too. So within minutes of the discoveries at Castle Drive, military police were instructed to check the occupants of all vehicles in and around Fort Bragg. So they sealed off Fort Bragg, basically. They sought out two white men and one black man and a white woman with blonde hair and a floppy hat in an effort to apprehend these four intruders that Jeffrey McDonald said had attacked him and his family. Despite the efforts, military police failed to locate four intruders and the initiative was ab abandoned at 6 a.m. You know, shortly after daylight on the 17th of February, investigators recovered the murder weapons just outside the back door. These instruments were an old hickory kitchen knife, an ice pick, a 31 inch long piece of lumber with two blue threads attached with blood. And all three were quickly determined to have come from the McDonald house and all had been wiped clean of fingerprints. Wow. <laughs> and McDonald later claimed to have never seen these items before. <laughs> she just bought them that day. While she yeah. Mm -hmm. As Army investigators studied this physical evidence, the Army CID quickly came to disbelieve Jeffrey's account as they found very little evidence to support his versions of events. Although McDonald was a trained or was trained in unarmed combat, the living room showed where he had supposedly fought for his life against three armed assailants. It showed few signs of a real struggle apart from a coffee table that had been knocked on its side with a pile of magazines beneath the edge and a flower pot that had fallen over or fallen to the floor. Questioning of the McDonald's neighbors revealed they heard no sounds of a struggle or disturbance within the household in the early hours, but had heard Colette shouting in a loud, angry voice. The 16-year-old daughter of these neighbors, who occasionally babysat for the family, informed investigators that the two had seemed indifferent to each other in the month prior to these murders. By February 23rd, Colonel Robert Krawaniak, the Fort Bragg uh, Marshal, had advised the FBI to discontinue their search for the foreign intruders. I mean, mm. so they were not buying any. Right. In addition to the lack of damage inside the house, no fibers from the McDonald's torn pajama top were found in the living room where he professes to have been attacked. And he also says that this garment was torn from him in his struggle with the intruders. Right. But the fibers from his pajama top were found beneath Colette's body in the bedroom and in the bedrooms of both daughters. Oh. And one fiber from this garment was also found under Kristen's fingernail. Oh, my gosh. A single fragment of skin was recovered from beneath one of Colette's fingernails, although this evidence was later lost. Mm -hmm. And blood-stained splinters, likely sourced from the lumber recovered close to the back door of the apartment, was recovered from all three bedrooms of the apartment, but not in the room where McDonald claims to have been attacked and hit in the head. 
No blood or fingerprints were found on either of the telephones where McDonald claimed he used the phone to call for help after checking each member of his family and attempting to resuscitate them. Right. So how, how do you call and you've, you've tried to save them and there's no blood on that telephone? Mm. God. <laughs> Furthermore, oh. the bloodstained tip of a surgical glove was also found beneath the headboard where the blood inscription was written pig. This glove was identical in composition to the medical supply that Jeffrey invariably kept in the family kitchen. Oh, yes. Okay. And it had rained that night of the 16th and into the morning of the 17th. And McDonald specifically claimed that this female intruder's rain boots were all wet with rainwater and that rainwater was just dripping off of these intruders. The sole footprint observed at the scene was a bloody bare footprint located in Kristen's bedroom, leading from the child's bed into the direction of the doorway. But there was no, no shoe print, wet, no wet trails in the house, no rain in the house. Mm. Nothing was wet. Gosh. Okay. So by mid-March, the CID had obtained the results of forensic testing of the blood, hair, and the fiber samples within 544 Castle Drive that contradicted McDonald's accounts of his movements and further convinced the investigators that he was guilty. I mean, for example, Kimberly's blood was also found on his pajama top, even though he claimed that he was not wearing this garment when he tried to resuscitate her. McDonald's own blood was located in significant quantities in only two locations, in the front kitchen cabinet containing the rubber gloves and at the right side of the hallway bathroom sink. Wow. So mm. investigators questioned why Colette's blood was found in Kristen's room, although all three victims were found in separate rooms, suggesting that they had been attacked separately. Although blood evidence indicated Kimberly had been attacked as she entered the master bedroom, investigators questioned why home intruders would even bother to carry her back to her bedroom and continue the attack there. So they're saying that it looks like Kimberly heard Colette being attacked and she was attacked oh my because God. she was at the door and then she was taken to her room and attacked. Wow. So no intruder is going to take that time to do that. No. That's somebody that knows her. Right. Wow. And the four members of the McDonald family all had different blood types, a statistical anomaly that assisted investigators in determining the movements of each family member of the household and their subsequent theory as the scenario of what happened okay upon the assumption that the four individuals discovered by responding military police were the only people in the house in the early hours of the february 17th they were able to reconstruct what chain of events had probably unfolded based on the blood types and the nature and severity of the wounds that were discovered on each individual that's mind-blowing so, that they all had different blood types mm -hmm, mm -hmm. oh wow yeah. So this is what their theory is. They feel like an argument or fight started between Jeffrey and Colette. And uh, it began in the master bedroom, possibly over the issue of Kristen's repeatedly wetting his side of the bed while sleeping there, or maybe his adultery because 
that comes up later too. Of he course. is known to be a cad, basically. Investigators speculated that the argument turned physical and she probably hit him on the forehead with a hairbrush because he had a mark on his forehead, which failed to break the skin. And he retaliated by hitting her first with his fist and then beating her with the piece of lumber. Oh, geez. Kimberly, whose blood and brain serum were found in the doorway of the master bedroom, may have walked in after hearing this commotion, and she was struck at least once on the head, possibly by accident. Okay. Believing, believing that Colette was dead, McDonald carried the mortally wounded Kimberly back to her bedroom. After stabbing her, McDonald then proceeded to Kristen's room, carrying the club that he had used to bludgeon Kimberly, intent on disposing of the last remaining potential witness. But before he could do so, Colette, whose blood was found on Kristen's bed covers and on one wall of her room, apparently had regained consciousness. Oh, my God. And she stumbled into her younger daughter's bedroom and threw her own body over Kristen in a desperate effort to protect her youngest child. Oh, my God. I cannot even imagine all of this transpiring at all. Mm -mm. How horrifying. And after killing both, McDonald then wrapped Colette's body in a sheet and carried her back to the master bedroom, leaving a smudged footprint matching her blood type as he exited Kristen's room. Mm. CID investigators then theorized that McDonald attempted to cover up the murders using articles on the Manson family murders that he had recently read in the March 1970 issue of Esquire investigators they found in the living room. Putting on the surgical gloves from a medical supply that he had in the kitchen closet, he went to his master bedroom and he took Colette's blood and wrote the word pig on the headboard. Jeez. So he had his wits about him. I mean, oh, yeah. he obviously went into some kind of psychotic rage in order to kill his whole family, but exactly. he knew what he was doing. It was definitely oh, meditative. Yeah. Absolutely. Wow. So then he laid his torn pajama top over Colette's dead body and repeatedly stabbed her in the chest with an ice pick and then discarded the weapons close to the back door of the property after he wiped them clean of his fingerprints. And finally, he took a scalpel blade from his supply closet and entered the adjacent bathroom and stabbed himself once in the chest while standing beside the sink before he disposed of the surgical gloves. He then used the telephone to summon the ambulance before lying down beside Colette's body as he waited for the police to arrive, the military police. Did you say where he put the surgical gloves after he took them it off? It said he disposed of them, but there was, uh, like, the tip of one was found mm -hmm. under the bed. Um, I think they found um, some of the, the trash. Okay. And there was uh, one pair, I think, found outside the door. Okay. I mean, and DNA wasn't even a thing. Yeah, I know. But I'm sure there's some that they held on to because it comes out later. Okay. He was like, we've got DNA testing now because in one of his appeals, he wanted a, a hair that was found either on the pajamas or something that was on Colette. 
he wanted that hair. He wanted that hair tested. And it came back to him. Oh my God. Oh my gosh. You were so Yeah, nice try. Well, the odds so, are so large that it would be one of his hairs anyway. He lived with her. They he slept lived. in the same bed. Exactly. Oh, my Lord. So April the 6th, 1970, Army investigators formally cautioned and then interrogated McDonald. And he was first offered the chance to recount his versions of events and recounted his claims of being attacked by four intruders with whom he grappled before falling to the ground, observing the, quote, top of some boots, end quote, and being rendered unconscious before regaining consciousness and experiencing the symptoms of a pneumothorax and then waking up in the hallway after the intruders had left. <laughs> Investigators were unconvinced. You know, they, they were just like, mm -mm, no, this, this does not make any sense. Midway through questioning, McDonald was asked the question about his stab wounds by CID investigator William Ivory, who I just love this. The investigator, Ivory, says, you didn't do it yourself, did you? Oh, my God. <laughs> and this question prompted McDonald to deny the accusation before referencing his own puncture wound. I mean, everything always comes back to, but this happened to me. Yeah, look what you know, happened It's me. always like me. It, yeah. He turns it back to me. It's not about him losing his family. Right. It's always like, yeah. And so he's like, um, he, he denies it and references his own puncture wound and his having to persuade the hospital doctors to insert a chest tube into his body as he was sure his lung was punctured. Oh my God. So if his lung was punctured, don't you think the doctors would have done it on their own? Right. Yeah. They don't need somebody that is a doctor to tell them how to do their job. Exactly. So questioning then focused upon the crime scene and the results from the what forensic testing was available in 1970. And McDonald did not. Any of the murder weapons had originated from his household, despite the fact that that section of lumber come from Kimberly's closet. Oh, wow. Okay. And this was hard to find, but I researched enough and I found there was a number that was, I don't know why it was written on there, but there was a number on that piece of lumber. And when the police researched that number, they called it and it went back to one of McDonald's superiors. What? Why? Yes. Yes. And he, when they called him, he said that he got a phone call that morning at like 2.30 a.m. And his wife said she answered the phone and she could hear something in the background, but she was asleep. It was like 2, 2.30 in the morning and they just hung up. Huh. I wonder what that's about. Nobody knows. Now, like I said, he was known to have affairs. There was speculation he might have been having an affair with his superior's wife. Okay. But she says no. And then somebody said, well, maybe he was trying to get his superior over there for something. But nobody knows. Huh. Well, yeah, she's not going to admit to anything. <laughs> oh, no, heck no. Not this. <laughs> 
So anyway, that lumber, that piece of wood came from Kimberly's closet. He also claimed that he was unaware how the fiber and the blood evidence contradicted his own accounts of his movements and actions in the house during this whole crime. Yeah, I'm sure. Okay. So this investigator, Franz Grebner, he made this quote. He said, this weapon was used on Colette and Kim. It's a brutal weapon. We had three people that were overkilled almost, and yet they leave you alive mm -hmm. while you were laying there in the hallway. Why not give you a good blow or two from behind the head with that club and finish you off? Right. You saw you saw them eye to eye. They don't know that you wouldn't be able to identify them at a later date. Why leave you there alive? End quote. Yeah, it makes no sense. Absolutely. Absolutely. So then investigator Robert Shaw questions McDonald's as to the lack of disorder and the damage within the house and the lack of any motive, stating that the investigators experience had four intruders come in on such a murderous frenzy with a small house like that. They would expect busted furniture, oh, yeah. broken mirrors, bashed in walls and the, basically, the only signs of a struggle was, you know, a flipped over coffee table. Right. And it wasn't even flipped all the way over. It was just kind of laying over on its side. And then there was a, a flower pot with a plant that was standing upright. Unbelievable. And so McDonald was like, he, he couldn't offer any kind of observation explanation for this you know and he claimed to be unaware how Kimberly's blood and brain serum was recovered at the master bedroom door so they continue to go back and forth about the physical discrepancies about the forensic evidence and all facts pointed to Jeffrey McDonald staging this whole crime scene hmm. and Grabner stated we all have business here that would tend to indicate that you were involved in this rather than people who come from outside and picked 544 Castle Drive and went up there and were lucky enough to find your door open. Um, you know, yeah, it was raining. Why are four people going to be out walking in the rain looking for an open door? The only reason why he would have been left alive is if they got disrupted, if somebody came to the door or somebody pulled up in the driveway, then I could see where he'd be left alive. He's the one that was left it, and called the ambulance and stuff. That's mm -hmm. such BS. Okay. And you know how I feel about polygraph tests. If somebody is being asked to submit to polygraph test, I'm like, don't do it because they're not admissible in court. And anything can to. make them, yeah, you know, anything can make them give a false negative, you know, or they're just not reliable. But when investigators asked Jeffrey to submit to a polygraph test to verify his accounts, he, he readily agreed. And then like within 10 minutes of this conclusion of this interview, he turns around, he calls investigators and says, oh, I changed my mind. I'm not submitting to any polygraph, which, you know, dude. Yeah, guilty. You know, uh-uh. You, either you're going to do it or you don't. But if you tell the police you're going to do a polygraph, do it. Don't backtrack that because that's just even that many more red flags. If you say you're going to do it, do it. Yeah. 
So according to the best-selling novel, which went on to become a famous miniseries that documented the McDonald trial and tale about the family slayings, Fatal Vision, on the evening of April the 6th, McDonald was relieved of his duties and placed under restriction pending further inquiries. The following day, he was assigned an army lawyer. Hmm. At the recommendation of his mother on April the 10th, he instead hired the flamboyant civilian defense attorney, Bernard Siegel, and he defended him. Less than a month later, on May the 1st, the Army formally charged McDonald with three counts of murder. And that same day, McDonald penned a letter to Colette's mother and stepfather professing his innocence and emphasizing that the Army would never admit to their error. And he speculated that his, this, oh, this gets to me. He speculated his wife's soul may hold, quote, infinite patience and understanding, end quote, of his current legal predicament. Like, what the, yeah. what the heck? Again, it's about him. So, an initial Army Article 32 hearing into McDonald's possible guilt, overseen by Colonel Warren Rock, convened on July the 6th, 1970. This hearing lasted until September. And basically, an Article 32 hearing is a pre-trial hearing that occurs before the general court-martial. So um, it just brings in, you know, their determination of whether you have enough evidence and, and to go to trial. Okay. McDonald's, McDonald's lawyer, Bernard Siegel, adopted an offensive strategy on the behalf of Jeffrey at this point, um, citing numerous examples of incompetence on the behalf of the Army CID, who he stated had clumsily and unprofessionally trampled all over the crime scene during their examination of the house. They obliterated tra traces of evidence that Perpetrators may have left losing vital pieces of evidence, including single thread that was found beneath Kimberly's nail, Jeffrey McDonald's pajama trousers, the four torn tips of the rubber surgical gloves that was found in the master bedroom, and the single layer of skin that was found beneath Colette's fingernails. And he's not wrong. Right. The, the military police... You know, if you go into a crime scene, crime crime scene 101 is you secure the scene. They had officers walking all over this place looking and taking pictures. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you could see officers standing at the doorway while the, the photographer's taking pictures. I mean, like two and three officers. You don't need that many officers inside of a crime scene. No, especially you know. a small place. Exactly. There's just no no reason for it. Um, Siegel elicited several examples of incompetence from the military police and the responding personnel, um, including testimony revealing that the ambulance driver had stolen McDonald's wallet from the living room. Oh, gee. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, a pathologist who testified to having failed to obtain the, uh, the children's fingerprints for comparison at the crime scene. So they didn't even get the, the baby's fingerprints. Wow. Yeah. The first witness to testify in McDonald's defense 
was responding military policeman Kenneth Micah, and he testified that on the way to answering McDonald's emergency call that night, he observed a blonde woman with a wide-brimmed hat that was standing on the street corner approximately half a mile from the McDonald home. So that was one of their trespassers? That's what he said. Remember he gave that description? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he noted that this sighting was unusual given the late hour and the weather. And Micah testified that contrary to instruction, an ambulance driver had placed the tilted flower pot upright while he was at the crime scene. So that's why it was sitting upright. Jeez. So Colonel Rock also testified that he himself went to the crime scene and tipped the coffee table over with it striking the side of the rocking chair and coming to rest on its edge. Rock also noted that the fact that there was no wet footprints and mud were found at the crime scene belonging to any of the alleged intruders, and that meant that the crime scene investigators had also failed to find any evidence of large numbers of military, police, and civilians who also walked around the house. Hmm. So, in August, Bernard Siegel was approached by a delivery man named William Posey, who claimed that the blonde woman McDonald stated had attacked his family might have been a local 17-year-old drug addict and police informant named Helena Stokely. And you will hear her a lot because, and I just think that she's just a red herring, honestly. I think that she possibly had been in the house at some time before, but I think she's really just a, a red herring in this case. She is a drug addict. She did, on a consistent basis, provide information to the police, but I don't think that she was involved in the murders of mcdonald family why was she in the house before to possibly steal because there had been a burglary okay um, of their house before okay and also she said that she had tried to get dr mcdonald to give her drugs give her some medicine i see mm -hmm. but according to posey stokely had been in the company of two or three young males in a car parked outside of her apartment at approximately 4 a.m on the morning of these murders and posey also claimed that stokely had ceased wearing her boots and floppy hat subsequent to february 17th and had dressed in black on the date of the funerals also stating to him that she did not remember what she did on the date of those murders posey later relayed this information at the hearing adding that stokely had informed him months later that she and her boyfriend could not marry until quote we go out and kill some more people end quote whoa so this leads people to believe that the husband did not do it that jeffrey is innocent yes oh my yes. lord so stokely was located in question regarding her whereabouts on february 17th and her answers were vague and basically she self-contradicted herself she recalled being in the company of her boyfriend gregory mitchell on the night of the 16th and going out for a ride in a car in the early hours of the following day and they drove around aimlessly but claimed to have been so far out on mescaline that she couldn't say for sure whether she had been at that house or not wow and although witnesses had claimed that stokely had admitted her involvement in these murders with several also remembering her wearing clothing that was similar to that description by jeffrey mcdonald on the date in question she was not subpoenaed to testify 
and procedural irregularities regarding the investigative conduct into Helena Stokely were also highlighted by McDonald's attorneys at this hearing. So, you know, there, there you get into the whole Brady thing, you know, the military police and the investigators didn't necessarily share everything that they had been told by some of these people that Helena and her boyfriend were in the area and they were telling people that they were involved in these murders. Wow. Yeah. So following favorable character testimony from several acquaintances and a military psychiatrist, McDonald testified for three days in mid-August 1970. And sections of his testimony contradicted what he had informed investigators on April 6th, including his claim that on occasion that he had actually moved Colette's body after having found her a little bit propped up against a chair before he just sort of laid her flat on the floor. He also stated that possibly because of his surgical background, he had, quote, sort of rinsed off his hands, end quote, as he checked his own injuries in the bathroom before calling for help. What the literal hell, dog? <laughs> Jeez. Okay. And referencing the type B blood found in the kitchen, McDonald testified that he, quote, may have also washed his hands in the kitchen sink for some reason prior to making the phone call for emergency services help. And contrary to medical reports and his earlier accounts, he also claimed to have located two bumps on the back of his head and two or three puncture wounds in his upper left chest and other wounds to his right bicep and approximately 10 ice pick wounds to his abdomen on February the 17th or 18th, all of which healed without treatment and none of which required surgery. Yeah. yeah. All places he could reach easily. Exactly. And questioned in regards to his infidelity, McDonald admitted that he had been unfaithful on two occasions, but he insisted that Colette didn't know about any of these affairs and that their time at Fort Bragg had been, you know, basically happy. McDonald's testimony was followed by that of a clinical psychologist who testified as to the conclusions of the test that he had conducted on Jeffrey. And he testified that it revealed an extraordinary absence of anxiety, depression, and anger in McDonald with regard to the loss of his family. And he reported that he was able to muster massive denial or repression to such a degree that the, quote, impact of the recent events of his life has been blunted, end quote. Furthermore, this extreme psychological response would likely see an individual convey himself as, quote, victimized and perhaps somewhat of a martyr, end quote. <laughs> I think he nailed it. Wow. And to the uh, disbelief of Colonel Krawinick, on October the 13th, 1970, Colonel Rock issued a report recommending that the charges be dismissed against McDonald as insufficient evidence existed to prove his guilt. Adding his belief that no truth existed in the charges 
and that the nature of the murders led him to believe that the perpetrators were either insane or under the influence of drugs. And Rock also recommended that civilian authorities further investigate Stokely. And later the same month, all charges were formally dismissed, although a new CID investigation was tasked with finding the murderers. And they were assembled on February 1971, with McDonald still being considered the prime suspect. So he never was in jail for any of that time. He's been just home? At that time, he was, yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So in December 1970, McDonald received an honorable discharge from the Army, and he returned to New York City, where he briefly worked as a doctor before re relocating to Long Beach, California, you know, where a happening gigolo needs to go. And um, his efforts to, he, he wanted to, quote, put the past behind him. <laughs> that poor, poor man. <laughs> and he wanted to distance his, this is his words now, distance mm. himself from the constant reminders of his wife and daughters. Not stay there and try and find <sighs> out who killed them. No, no. Okay. So he obtained employment as an emergency room physician at St. Mary Medical Center, and he frequently worked long hours, bless his heart. And he became an instructor at UCLA Medical Center and a medical director at the Long Beach Grand Prix, a lecturer on the subject of recognition and get this, hold on to your hat, <laughs> and speaker on the treatment of child abuse. Oh, wow. That's horrible. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. How do you sleep at night? Like, really? Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm. wow. And a participant in the development of National Cardiopulmonary Resuscitation Training Program, so CPR. McDonald lived in a 300, this is in the 70s, a $350,000 Huntington Beach condominium apartment. Jeez, just living his life like yeah. nothing happened. He is known to have lived a promiscuous lifestyle prior to forming a long-term relationship with a 22-year-old airline stewardess named Candy Kramer in the 70s. How old was he? Uh, this was in 1971 and he was born in 43. Okay. So he was 30. Yeah. Almost 30. Okay. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So in the years immediately following this dismissal of his murder charges, McDonald received an abundance of emotional and public support. He wrote letters to several magazines and newspapers detailing his willingness to further publicize the background and legalities of his case. And within days just days of the dismissal of his charges, he began granting press interviews. Oh, God. And he was making media appearances. Most notably, December the 15th, 1970, he appeared on an episode of the Dick Cavett Show. And he, oh my God, it makes my stomach turn to look at his smug smirk on his face. I just want to go through and punch him right square in the mouth. <laughs> I am not going to lie. He is so flippant. And he complained about the Army investigation and their focus on him as the suspect. And on this occasion, he claimed to have sustained 23 
wounds. Oh. I mean, you notice his wounds keep growing as the yeah. time goes on. Yep. And he then says, of these 23 wounds that I sustained, some were potentially fatal. Oh, they just healed on their own, though. Yeah. And McDonald's stepfather-in-law, Colette's stepfather, Alfred Kassab, had initially had faith in Jeffrey. He, he believed in his stepson, uh, stepson-in-law. Right. Um, and he really had faith and believed in his innocence. And both he and Colette's mother, Mildred, had testified in support of Jeffrey McDonald during the Army's Article 32 hearing. And they informed the press. Uh, Mr. Alfred said, my wife and I feel very strongly in Captain McDonald's innocence. After all, it was our daughter and two grandchildren who were butchered. However, by November of 1970, Kassab had grown suspicious of Jeffrey's repeated reluctance to give him a copy of this 2,000-page transcript of the Article 32 hearing. And in an apparent effort to discourage Mr. Alfred's efforts to obtain this transcript so he could pursue the true killers. McDonald told Mr. Kassab that he and um, some army colleagues had actually tracked down, tortured, and eventually murdered one of the four alleged murderers. What? <laughs> yes. Oh my God. How far-fetched. So, Yes, Kassab's suspicion greatly increased following McDonald's casual and dismissive demeanor on the Dick Cabot show just days after he had himself hand-delivered 500 copies of an 11-page letter to members of Congress requesting a congressionally mandated reinvestigation to the murders, and he and his wife publicly turned against McDonald's. Good for them. And So in North Carolina... I'm assuming it's still this way, but I know it was then. If something's dismissed, if you have some evidence, you can request a reinvestigation and actually file charges yourself. Oh, that's awesome. Good for them. So the citizens can request that. And and that it this right here terrifies me that this man, Jeffrey McDonald, this if this had occurred in another state, he would be out walking around free. Well, yeah, that's true. Mm -hmm. All states so, have that. Kassab successfully attained this copy of the Article 32 transcript from the Army in February of 71. And he studied this document and he realized that Jeffrey McDonald told so many inconsistencies with the facts. Um, and even his own account was just nothing but a tissue of lies. And he he changed his stories with the wind, basically. One example was that McDonald's assertion that he had sustained life-threatening injuries, including 10 ice pick wounds during the physical assault. Uh, he had met McDonald at the hospital less than 18 hours after the attack, and he saw him sitting up in bed eating. Yeah. And he had no, just very little bandages on him. And the examination of the hospital records confirmed that he had no such wounds. Kassab also discovered that within weeks of the murders, McDonald began dating a young woman employed at Fort Bragg. 
And he also found out that by 1969, he had rekindled his relationship with Penny Wells. Oh, my gosh. Unbelievable. Mm -hmm. So um, with the cooperation of Colonel Krawinek, the Army investigators, Mr. Kasab visited the crime scene for several hours in order to compare the physical evidence against McDonald's testimony um, in March of 71. And this assessment convinced Mr. Kasab of Jeffrey McDonald's guilt. And he made it his mission to pursue all legal avenues to bring his daughter and his granddaughter's killer to justice. As an army investigation was completed, the only way Kasab could bring McDonald to trial was via the citizen's complaint filed through the U.S. Department of Justice, and he filed this complaint in early of 72. And although because the murders had occurred while McDonald was serving in the Army, he had since been discharged and the citizen's complaint was declared moot, the FBI refused to take on the case. Oh, wow. Between 72 and 74, the case kind of stalled with the Department of Justice as legal issues were debated and raised over whether or not the sufficient evidence and probable cause existed for an indictment and prosecution. On April the 30th, 74, the Kassabs, their attorney, Richard Kahn, a CID agent, Peter Kearns, presented the citizen's complaint against McDonald to the U.S. Chief District Court Judge Butler, Algernon Butler, requesting the convening of a grand jury to indict Jeffrey McDonald for these murders. And the following month, the Justice Department attorney, Victor Warhide, ruled that the case was worthy of prosecution. Oh, thank God. So 70, uh, August 12, 74, grand jury convened before U.S. District Judge Judge Franklin Dupree in Raleigh, North Carolina, and they heard all the legal proceedings. 75 witnesses were called to testify, and McDonald was the first individual to testify at his hearing. His testimony lasted five days. <laughs> and he, during all this, he conceded that although he had publicly resolved to pursue all legal avenues following the 1970 dismissal of the murder charges against him and to hire investigators, he had, you know, failed to do so. I mean, if yeah. you want to, you know, how are you just going to forget to hire somebody to <laughs> investigate your wife's and children's murders? He's busy. He had yeah. places to move to. <laughs> Nonetheless, he was adamant he made his own efforts to identify the perpetrators and to locate Helena Stokely. He also claimed that with the numerous fabrications he had provided to the Kassabs and to the uh, sections of the media and the in intervening years were to placate his in-laws. Wow. And that, you know, he had received more stabs and puncture wounds to his body than were actually recorded on the medical records, which he blamed on malpractice. Oh, I'm sure. My dad always said if you wanted to be a criminal, you'd have to have a really good memory to keep up with all your lies. <laughs> exactly. He clearly so, did not. No, he did not. And when asked by Victor Warhide if he would submit to a um, polygraph or to a sodium amytal test to verify his version of events. McDonald read a statement prepared by his attorneys denying their request. 
Other witnesses that testified included surgeons that were on duty and had examined McDonald and testified that aside from the punctured lung, he was not in any great danger medically and that the superficial stab wound to his upper left arm and abdomen, he had no stab wounds to his body other than those two. I was asked the other day why anybody would want to move to the state of Alabama. Really? Mama's fried chicken, barbecue, Friday night lights, SEC football, NASCAR. We actually have all four seasons here. And where I live, we have the National Peanut Festival. Slocum has the Tomato Festival. We have To Kill a Mockingbird was written here. Really? Alabama has amazing property taxes. So give my friend Joanna Benefield a call and let her put you in your dream home today. 334-796-7085. 334-796-7085. And come enjoy some Southern hospitality. A reporter who had covered the Article 32 hearing and who interviewed McDonald after the charges were dropped also stated that in his experience, individuals who were under the influence of LSD were very seldom violent and that by contrast, only those who consume amphetamines were. Hmm. Yeah, you know, when he was doing this research, basically, all about the Charles Manson case, he had time to think up that girl knowing that she lived in the neighborhood and was a drug addict and stuff. So he probably plotted it all out that he could point That's the fingers. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's what I'm thinking. So on December 12th, a former chief of psychiatry who had testified at the Article 32 hearing, Bruce Bailey testified and said that when discussing his family and the events surrounding their deaths with him, McDonald would occasionally become emotional and become tearful, but he recovered quickly. He also testified that McDonald, he found McDonald to be controlling and a individual who was extremely dependent on what others thought of him and that he would often launch into a verbal tirade to allow his deep-seated emotions to become expressed by other means. And when questioned as to whether McDonald suffered from a mental disorder, Bailey testified he did not, although he could not discount the possibility of him murdering members of his family in a situation of extreme stress. This testimony was followed by a Philadelphia-based psychologist who conceded that had McDonald committed such an act of violence, he would successfully, quote, completely block, end quote, the episode from his mind. Hmm. So the um, chief of the FBI's crime lab chemistry section, Paul Strombaugh, then testified that the pajama top that was placed over Colette's body had been heavily bloodstained before the garment was torn and that contrary to McDonald's claim, a lack of tearing at the edges of these holes proved that all 48 holes within this item of clothing had been inflicted while the garment was stationary rather than it being in motion. Stonball also testified that the cuts within 
all the garments other than the pajama top had been inflicted with the old hickory kitchen knife found outside the family home and not the paring knife that he claimed that he removed from Colette's body. Mm-hmm. And that the majority of the blood belonged to Colette and her blood had transferred onto the garment on at least four locations prior to the garment being torn. Furthermore, the club used to bludgeon Colette and Kimberly, which McDonald had denied any knowledge of, had also been sawed from one of the mattress slats in Kimberly's bedroom. And a single hair found in Colette's right palm had sourced from her own body, not a blonde-haired intruder. Oh, wow. So McDonald was recalled to testify before the grand jury on January 21st, 1975. And on this occasion, he was markedly arrogant, go figure, and he was sarcastic when questioned in regards to the issues of his infidelity or the prosecution's illustration of forensic contradictions. On one occasion, he was shouting, I have no idea. I don't even know what the crap you're trying to feed me. And uh, in another response as to how his blood and Colette's blood had transferred onto a sheet that was taken from Kristen's bedroom and got to the master bedroom. And he also refused to discuss the results of a private polygraph test to which he consented in 1970. The results had been given to Bernard Siegel, indicating he would have to speak with his attorney on this matter before consenting to this line of inquiry. I mean, he was just very upset and arrogant he should be upset that they hadn't found the killer yet if it wasn't him absolutely i mean one would think and and, you know it's a military base and the the house that he was in had military police to protect it it's not like it's an open community where traffic just comes and goes this was you know they're pretty much going to know who's in that base Mm. So following a brief recess, McDonald read a statement prepared by his attorneys denying the prosecution's request to discuss the results of his 1970 polygraph examination, contending Warhide had violated the attorney-client privilege. He then read his own statement to the jury, claiming five long years had passed since the murder of his family and his efforts to start life afresh, and that the questions posed by the prosecutions were once he had to live with for five years. Poor guy. <laughs> poor, poor oh man. He just wants to start his new life. Exactly. They would just leave him alone. Mm-hmm. So on January 24, 70, 1975, the grand jury formally indicted Jeffrey McDonald on three counts of murder. And within an hour, he was arrested in California. Yay. On January 31st, he was freed upon a $100,000 bail raised by friends and colleagues pending deposition of the charges, although he was arraigned on May the 23rd and pled not guilty to these murders on this date. On July 29th, Judge Dupree denied the double jeopardy and speedy trial arguments successfully filed by his attorneys and allowed the proposed trial date of August the 18th, 1975 to stand. Although the Fourth Circuit of Appeals ruled to stay the proceedings on August the 15th. The panel of this court ordered the indictments dismissed on the grounds of a defendant's right to a speedy trial on January 3rd, 1976. McDonald himself claimed to weep 
quote, tears of relief rather than tears of joy upon hearing this news and later recollected to return to a big celebration that his ordeal was now over. So, and like I was saying, this case is the most tried and appealed case in American history. Wow. So he's out, he's celebrating. The story, as McDonald told it, had been a fabrication. It could not have happened the way he said it happened. None of his story holds together. I mean, none of what he says, he did. He claims to have been attacked in the living room. He claims to have been stabbed 10 times with an ice pick. There's no, nobody ever saw him, okay? I feel for Colette's parents. I mean, they they lost their daughter, their, their grandchildren. Right. And Colette was pregnant. Yeah. With, his, with, with Jeffrey's first son, okay? So an appeal on the behalf of the government led to a reinstatement of the indictment being 8-0 margin within the United States Supreme Court on May the 1st, 1978. And in response to this decision, Mr. Alfred Kassab informed the press that he and his wife welcomed these developments, stating it has been a tremendous personal pressure to have someone running around that you are convinced killed your daughter and your grandchildren. Yeah. On October the 22nd, the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals rejected McDonald's double jeopardy arguments again, and the Supreme Court refused to review this decision on March 19, 1979. So he's brought to trial again. Although McDonald's lawyers had been confident of an acquittal, there were successful rulings against the defense. Praise God. And the first such ruling was Judge Dupree's refusal to admit into evidence the 1979 psychiatric evaluation of McDonald, which suggested that an individual of his personality and mindset was highly unlikely to be capable of killing his family. Dupree justified this refusal by saying that as McDonald's attorneys had not entered an insanity plea for their client, he did not wish for the trial to be hindered with opinionated and contradictory psychiatric testimony from prosecution and defense witnesses. And this was a further defense setback as the judge ruled against this motion and suppressed this introduction. He also suppressed the introduction of McDonald's um, pajama top as evidence for the prosecution. So he did allow the prosecution to bring into evidence that March 1970 Esquire magazine, which contained the, the part about the Manson murders. So they were able to use that. So that kind of showed malice and forethought. He also brought into evidence the questioning of numerous witnesses, the evidence about the uh, club being taken out of Kimberly's room. And he's basically saying, um, we believe that this physical evidence points to the fact that unfortunately one person, not two, three, four or more killed Colette, Kimberly, and Kristen. And this one person is this defendant. Wow. This went on. One of the chief prosecution witnesses testified to testify was Paul Stombaugh, whom the prosecution summoned to testify on August 7th. And he demonstrated to the jurors how McDonald's, he, he wasn't able to bring the physical pajama top as evidence, but he demonstrated that it had been placed 
on Colette and had been pierced by 48 small, soothed ice pick holes after the garment had been placed on top of Colette's chest. Wow. Where was that evidence at the beginning? Exactly. Oh, my gosh. Wow. So he was saying that in order for the holes to have been as smooth and devoid of fraying or tearing, the garment would have to have had been just stationary and an extremely unlikely occurrence if, as McDonald contended, he had wrapped it around his hands and been defending himself from blows from an attacker wielding an ice pick or a club because he would have been moving those hands. <laughs> so, you know, it, it didn't make any sense. No. And furthermore, he demonstrated that by folding a garment in the manner depicted in the crime scene photos and all 48 holes could have been made by 21 thrust with an ice pick through the garment in an identical pattern, implying that Colette had been repeatedly stabbed through the pajama top while it was laying on her chest. And although Seagull subjected Stombaugh to harsh cross-examination, repeatedly raising his voice as he challenged his credentials and forensic methods, Stombaugh remained steadfast, calm, cool, collected, and made Seagull look like a jackass. <laughs> Um, and a further piece of damaging evidence against McDonald was an audio tape made the April, uh, April 6, 1970, um, in an interview by the military investigators in which was played in the courtroom immediately after the jurors had returned from visiting the intact crime scene. See, all this time, they've left that house sealed. Oh, wow. And they took the jurors to the crime scene. Oh, God. Oh. So the jury heard McDon they heard the McDonald's matter of fact, narcissistic, indifferent recitation of the murders. Mm -hmm. They heard him become angry, defensive, and an emotional response to suggestions by the investigators that he had committed the murders. And he asked the investigators why they would think he, who had a beautiful family and had, quote, everything going for him, end quote, could have murdered his family in cold blood for no reason. And the jury also heard investigators later confront him with their knowledge of his extramarital affairs, to which McDonald murmured, oh, you guys are more thorough than I thought. Oh, jeez. What an ass. <laughs> So despite the earlier rulings against the defense counsel, the prosecution was also hampered by the lack of obvious motive for McDonald to have committed the murders. He, he had no history of violence or domestic abuse. The defense argued that the crime scene was hopelessly compromised, yada, 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 and potential evidence was destroyed. They called several favorable witnesses on McDonald's behalf. Um, an expert named James Thornton to, came to the stand and attempted to rebut Stombaugh's contention that the pajama top was stationary. He actually took a, uh, a, a pajama top and wrapped it around a ham <laughs> and then stabbed it with an ice pick. A ham? And, yes, a ham. Okay. All right. <laughs> and stabbed it with a ice pick, but it resulted in perfectly cylindrical holes. So, hmm. you know, it, it, it backfired on him. Yeah. And so following Thornton's testimony, prosecutors Murtaugh and Blackburn staged an impromptu reenactment of the alleged attack 
on McDonald. And he wrapped a pajama top in the same material around his hands and attempted to fend off a series of blows that Blackburn attempted to inflict on him with an ice pick like was used in the murders. And the resulting ice pick holes in the pajama top were jagged and elongated. And so this showed that it couldn't have happened the way that he described it. Wow. So one of the final witnesses was Helena Stokely. She was subpoenaed to testify and intent on extracting a confession from her that she had been the one to be one of the intruders and had entered the house and murdered his his family. Seagull talked Stokely in private. He talked to her in private for over two hours. He tried to persuade her to confess, which is like a big no-no. Yeah. You know, and tried to get her to confess to end McDonald's quote, years of suffering unjustly. Also, he promised her immunity from prosecution, which he can't do. Oh, my gosh. Due to the expiration of the statute of limitations. So Stokely repeatedly informed Seagull she was unable to help him. She also denied ever having seen McDonald and refused to testify to acts that she was adamant that she did not commit. Good for so her. under oath. Under oath, Stokely denied any culpability in the murders and any knowledge of who may have committed the acts, insisted that she was unable to recall her whereabouts and the dates of the murders. She emphasized her extensive drug use in 1970 and the intervening years, adding that the night of February 16th and 17th was, quote, by no means the first or the last night in which she was able to recall her whereabouts due to her drug use. Following this testimony, Murtaugh and Seagull alternately argued before Judge Dupree for this dismissal of this testimony or the introduction of testimony from several witnesses of whom Stokely had earlier alleged confessed to her. On August the 20th, Dupree refused the introduction of this testimony, citing legal trustworthiness and stating that the introduction of these witnesses would add no further value to the proceedings other than what they had experienced from Stokely's own testimony. At that point, McDonald testifies on his behalf on the 23rd and the 24th, and he was questioned by his attorney. And, of course, Siegel tries to humanize him, and he goes all in about how he loves Colette and their children and that um, we shared our life experiences. And he also claims that the reasons he's never remarried was the fact that he was unable to forget his wife and children who he thought about daily. <laughs> and it's disgusting. Uh, my thing is, if you think about them daily, why aren't you out there seeking their killers? Right. And those kids mm -hmm. have been dead longer than they were alive. Exactly. Exactly. So the following day, James Blackburn cross-examines McDonald, and he outlines every piece of physical and circumstantial evidence that was recovered at this crime scene, which contradicts McDonald's own accounts of the assailants attacking him and murdering his family and indicates McDonald's guilt. Blackburn typically begins each question with a statement to the effect of Dr. McDonald, should the jury find from the evidence... <laughs> And I love it because he's unlike any attorney I've ever seen. Mm -hmm. And he was a fairly new attorney and his line of questioning was really different, but it proved to be very effective. So I'd never seen a, an attorney question the way he did. And it, it 
one. It was, it was very unique uh, when questioning McDonald with regards to various discrepancies on his accounts of the, uh, of his movements and the injuries he sustained and the positioning of his pajama top on his body throughout the night of the murders and the tears and the fiber evidence sourcing Blackburn succeeded in highlighting several discrepancies in Jeffrey McDonald's accounts by comparing to previous interview transcripts and, and his current claims just that very day. And <laughs> the repeated objections in his line of questioning and claiming the discrepancies by Siegel were just humorous. Hmm. I mean, Siegel just continued to object to everything that Blackburn was doing. And you could tell the jury was like, oh, he's got him over the rails. Right. Being relentless. Um, Anyway, they go on to closing arguments and uh, they both go on to talk about the injuries of Colette and Kimberly and Kristen and show the photographs of the victims. And I have seen them and it's tragic. Mm -hmm. It's, it still makes me want to cry. You know, when you see a two, three-year-old child with stab wounds that, you know, come from her dad. Yeah. It's, it is tragic. It's disgusting. Uh, it's, it's terrible. This is supposed to be the man that protect her. The jury goes in and they said when they come back out, they are actually weeping. The final address to the jury, Judge Dupree informed the panel that they had three choices to choose from. To find McDonald not guilty, to find him guilty of first degree murder, or to find him guilty of second degree murder in each case. Shortly after 4 p.m. on August the 29th, 1979, the jury, having deliberated for six and a half hours, announced they had reached a verdict. McDonald was convicted of one count of first-degree murder on the death of Kristen, two counts of second-degree murder, and the deaths of Colette and Kimberly. Four jurors wept as they announced their verdicts, and McDonald's mother was rushed out of the courtroom. McDonald himself displayed no emotion. Judge Pree imposed a life sentence for each of the murders to be served consecutively, and bail was revoked. McDonald was temporarily transferred to Butner County Jail prior to his permanent transferal to a federal correction institute in Terminal Island, California. Immediately following the verdict, Alfred Kassab telephoned the family lawyer, Richard Kahn, and thanked him for his exhaustive efforts over the years. Wow. He's applied for appeals. On July 29, 1980, a panel of Fourth Circuit Court Appeals reversed McDonald's conviction, ruling a two-to-one margin that a nine-year delay in bringing him to trial violated his Sixth Amendment rights for a speedy trial, and he was released on August 22nd, having posted a $100,000 bail. Subsequently, he returned to work as the Director of Emergency Medicine at St. Mary's Medical Center in Long Beach, California, and he announced his engagement to his fiance Randy D. Martin, in March. Wow. 
Six months later, on December the 18th, a Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals voted five to five to hear an appeal as a majority did not vote to hear this appeal. The application was accordingly denied upholding the previous ruling. This decision was appealed again, and on May 26, 1981, the U.S. Supreme Court accepted the case for consideration, and on March 31st, 1982, the Supreme Court ruled 6-3 that McDonald's rights to a speedy trial had not been violated, stating the time interval between the dismissal of the military charges and the indictment on the civilian charges should not be considered in determining whether the delay in bringing McDonald to trial violated his rights to a speedy trial under the Sixth Amendment. He was rearrested and returned to federal prison, and the original sentence of three consecutive life terms were reinstated. This so the is following a circus. It is. The following year, McDonald dismissed Siegel as his legal representation. Well, he's probably getting ready to retire anyway. So uh, McDonald filed an appeal contending his conviction should be overturned due to suppressed evidence. Dupree rejected these defense motions on March the 1st, 1985. The Supreme Court held up that decision in 86. Another appeal was argued in the Fourth Circuit Appeals in 92, and it listed newly discovered evidence in which McDonald contended was suppressed at the trial, in which he claimed corroborated the account of the murders, and this appeal contended that Judge Dupree permitted this evidence. Had he permitted this evidence, the jurors would have learned that all of the doctors hired by were hired by the defense, had worked for the Army or the government at Walter Reed, and had concluded that McDonald was psychologically incapable of committing such acts of violence. And uh, September 2nd, 97, the district court granted McDonald's motion to file supplemental affidavit with the Fourth Circuit Appeals. It went on. They tested for hair and blood evidence in 2000, 2006, and, and one of the hairs they were claiming was in a brush was a blonde, really, really blonde synthetic hair, like it came from a wig. Right. And remember they were saying that the girl in the floppy hat was mm-hmm. wearing a wig. Okay. But my thoughts are she's there to crime scene carrying around a candle chanting, you know, acid is gravy, kill the pigs. She's not going to stop and brush her hair. But he had two daughters. They have dogs. Right. Yeah. Barbies or whatever. Yeah. I mean, so that's where that come from. I'm just, I, I just don't believe that <laughs> she stopped, picked up Colette's brush and brushed her right, hair. Right. <laughs> so, um, so they wanted DNA evidence testing in 2006 and they're saying it belonged to one of the intruders. Come to find out it belonged to um, Jeffrey himself. So he is basically, he's requested to get out based on his health. And he is, gosh, he's in his late 70s now, 78, I guess. And he is currently sentenced to life in federal prison in Cumberland, Maryland, and continues to maintain his innocence. One of the things that I was really aggravated about that was not brought up. I mean, there's still like five pages of stuff that I just, I'm not going to go into because it just goes back and forth. Appeals denied. Appeals, it gets looked at. And it 
It is the most appealed and tried case in American history. It, that's embarrassing. That's embarrassing it, for our it government. Is. And, and, you know, this is why I, I say our judicial system is a joke. Yeah, it is. People should only get to appeal like, a, you know, a certain number of times, especially in a case like this. That's making her family have to go through these deaths over and over and over. It's terrible. Mm -hmm. It is. But one of the things that just really irritated me was in the master bedroom, there was a suitcase. Okay. And anytime there's a crime scene or a domestic incident, if you see a suitcase, you better look at it because there's trouble in paradise or they're coming back from a vacation or something. Okay. So it was not brought out uh, and brought up. And I think it should have been looked at more closely. This suitcase was on top of blood splatters of Colette's. That's so crazy. It had no blood on it, no blood splatters on it, but it was on top of blood splatters and it was empty. Mm. One of her dresser drawers was partially open with clothes just crammed in it. Colette was very, very neat and meticulous. All the rest of her dresser drawers, her clothes were very neatly placed in there. This dresser drawer, clothes were like just shoved in there. Right. Okay. There, it was noted, and there's a picture of the clothes in the hallway. Outside of the bed, master bedroom door was a stack of the girls' clothes, mixed, not divided between oh. Kimberly and Kristen's, a stack neatly. Now, if there was a fuss and fight and breaking going in the house, would those clothes still be standing there? Mm, that's interesting. So my theories, and this was on one of the FBI blog sites, was that's where I found out. I, I noticed the suitcase in the picture of the bedroom of the crime scene. And so I got to looking. McDonald, I typed it up, Googled McDonald suitcase master bedroom. Okay, so that's where I ran across one of the retired crime scene investigators. And I saw where the suitcase was on top of the blood. Colette had called her mother the day before and asked if she could bring the girls to see her mom and her stepdad for the weekend or whatever. And she said, why don't you wait and bring them in the spring? We're having a pool put in the backyard. The backyard is dug up. And I'm afraid they're going to get hurt or fall in the hole or, or it's just a big mess. Why don't you wait to a couple of weeks for spring break? And she said, okay, yeah, sure. So I'm thinking that she had that suitcase packed. For sure. And then Jeffrey, when he killed, killed him, he was like, I'm fixing to get out. I, I'm fixing to go. I've got to get rid of this. And then he's like, oh, if I leave, I'm going to look even more guilty. So he just threw the suitcase over to the side. And shoved the clothes back in the drawer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't know about any of that. That's, it all seems so, so obvious. I don't understand where the confusion lies. It's just, I don't know. But at that, I would have brought up something with the suitcase. Uh, because that right there tells me that, it links it really to, to him because that was on top of the blood. Right. Yeah. So I, he did it. 
and he spent all this time in, in prison. If it had happened in a different uh, a different state, he would be out. Thank God for North Carolina. Well, and he must have a ton of money to use for legal fees and stuff. Yes, exactly. To, to appeal and appeal and appeal. I just, it's unbelievable. Our judicial system should have stopped it oh. years and years before that. It's this case just still gets me and he's still trying to get out. He still professes his innocence. I'm like, dude, give up the ghost. We know you did it. He's got more people to date. Apparently <laughs> he's old. Dog. I know. But apparently he's got more, more things to do. Oh, he sounds I like know. a pig. He is. He is. But I'm just so glad he's behind bars. I mean, just, uh, but this was the, this is the one, this is the case that I have. This is my first one that I remember. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I remember the name of the book and the mini series. I remember that name, but I don't know if I ever saw it. Yes. Oh, and the, I, I cannot remember the actor's name who played him, but he was so good. He was just, yeah, he played that part very well. Mm. So that's my case for this week. Jeffrey McDonald. Fatal wow. vision or fatal yeah. error. So <laughs> I can't so, believe he's still alive. Yeah, I'm really surprised. Oh, I know. I know. All yeah. right. Well, oh, that was a lot. It was. It's very sad. But yeah, it is. It's tragic. Those it poor, is. poor women, poor little girls. I know. So sad. But next week, we'll have to try to find something a little bit different, change it, try to go with something that's, I don't know, if you can make it lighter. But <laughs> yeah. We'll try something different. That's the uh, movie. But anyway, anyway, but I appreciate all of y'all joining us. And for our listeners in Florida, I know this will be coming out on Thursday. I hope that you all are safe. You're in our thoughts and prayers with this storm coming your way. Um, just know that we're thinking about you. I know that like 51% of our Florida listeners are in the uh, Jacksonville area we have a lot of listeners in tampa as well so with this hurricane coming your way yeah. you're in our thoughts and prayers definitely yeah so anyway all right guys if you have any suggestions uh comments leave us a comment review um you can reach us on facebook you can reach us at crime explorers at gmail.com instagram just uh keep subscribing We'll be dropping some bonus episodes on our Crime Stoppers episodes. So we look forward to hearing from you. Yeah, for sure. All right, guys, stay safe. Thanks, guys. Bye.